What's going on, guys? Uh, Bob Knight recently passed away. And so I thought I'd cover kind of my memories of Bob Knight. One lesson that I learned from Bob Knight, his leadership style, and give you a little bit of memories of one of the best books I've read about Bob Knight, the famous book, Season on the Brink by John Feinstein, a book that was written basically in the late 80s, not about the championship team of... 1987, but the season before, kind of building up to this legendary championship team that Bob Knight had. So what do you say about Bob Knight? I, there's a gazillion people talking about this, and you're probably like, what do you have to add other than all these commentators? Well, in the 80s, that's really my memory of Bob Knight really lies in the 80s. But for those of you who grew up in the 80s or um, read about the 80s, College basketball in the 1980s was huge. It was as big as college football is today. This is really before people came out early. They might skip their senior year, but it was exceedingly rare that people went out after their freshman season. This whole one and the done thing or going directly from high school was rare. There were a few people that did it, like Moses Malone. I think Daryl Dawkins in the 1970s went right from high school with the pros. But for the most part, there usually was like an underlying reason as to why you skipped that senior year. Most of these college basketball teams consisted of 22 and 23-year-old men that were polished players. And there were these incredible rivalries between Indiana and Michigan State, Seton Hall versus Syracuse. And the five slamma jamma of Houston, where you had like Clyde Drexler, Akeem Olajuwon, Virginia had a guy named Ralph Sampson, North Carolina, of course, had Michael Jordan and James Worthy. Indiana, led by Bob Knight, had like Keith Smark, Isaiah Thomas, Steve Alford, Dan Dakich. And, these, and you had this thing where because these guys were there for four and five years, you had these incredible rivalries and they were close and they were hotly contested. And I got to say, I don't think this is just looking through the sepia tone lens of, um, you know, oh, our generation was better. The basketball was better in the eighties because the guys stayed for five years, four years. I mean, these guys were men, they were rivalries, they were polished. And most of the, to a large degree, this is, I think still true, but a lot of the, basketball players and basketball coaches at that era stayed for a long time. So you had people like Judd Heathcote, Bobby Knight, George, Lou Olson, George Raveling, from University of Iowa. Of course, University of Iowa, I remember all those guys too, like Steve Carfino, Michael Payne, Greg Stokes. And, they had these incredible, and Bob Knight stands at the pinnacle of that. So with his passing legendary bas basketball coach Bob Knight, I thought I'd just kind of give you kind of a take on um, Bob Knight, uh, kind of my memories of Bob Knight, one of the lessons that he identified, and then maybe do a little bit of the detour in terms of one of his great lessons. And then also get a little bit into kind of his leadership style, because of course, with all the memories of Bob Knight as being one of the greatest coach in the college basketball ranks. He won three national champions, uh, national titles. And if memory serves me right, he won 1977, 
believe we won the 1981 national title with Isaiah Thomas. And his last one was in 1987. I believe he made the Final Four a couple more times and lost. And then he also made a couple Sweet 16s with Texas Tech after he left or was fired um, unceremoniously in the mid-90s by um, Indiana after I think he may have grabbed a player. So for those of you who really want to get a scoop on what Bob Knight was like, I think probably one of the great sports books probably of the 20th century, yeah, it's really good, was John Feinstein's book, Season on the Brink, where he basically was a fly in the wall of the Indiana basketball program for an entire year. And I believe it was like 1986. And this was the same season that Bob Knight got so frustrated that he actually threw a chair out on the floor. And people were like, is he totally out of control? So this kind of offer, this kind of access was rarely given to a journalist like this. And of all people, Mr. Control Freak, Bob Knight, granted Feinstein this, this access. And so you really got kind of a sneak peek into like what made him tick. And the players that worked on that team that he kind of described was Steve Alford, Keith Smart, Dan Dakich. There was a couple other guys on the team. And this kind of made up the bulk of the Indiana team that was being polished into the national championship team of 1987, I believe in which they beat Syracuse. I actually remember that, watching that game. Um, and who's the coach? I think it was the same guy that they have now who's still, who's still actually coaching. Um, Jimmy Bayhine. So, and to some degree, some of these guys are still around, but it's a, so Jimmy Beheim coached against Bob Knight and they barely won. And it was a very dramatic any, ending where I believe it was Keith Smart hit like a jumper and sealed the win. It was very closely fought. They won the national title. And so he won his third national title in basically 10 years. So he won a third of all national titles for a 10 year period from 77 to 87. So he's clearly one of the best coaches in the late seventies and early eighties. And he proved it and backed it up with wins. He did it. And what made really reminded me of that was, is that in the 1980s, like the Hawkeyes, that's really the last time I followed Hawkeyes basketball, it's kind of like the Cubs. I can name the the baseball players from the 80s Chicago Cubs, like Rick Sutcliffe and Ron Say and Leon Durham and Lee Smith. And I can't name a single player now. Hawkeye basketball, I can name almost the entire roster of the guys that played against Bobby Knight's teams. People like Jeff Moe and Greg Stokes and Michael Payne and Steve Carfino. And these were huge games, and they were and they were always really closely fought. They're great players, and there was a lot of artistry and talent and intensity. And Bob Knight at at that era was the pinnacle of Big Ten basketball. I think the only team that really kind of routinely competed. Purdue was still pretty good then. I think they had oh, who was that guy? There was like this really grumpy looking guy that they had, and then Judd Heathcote. Looked like a mobster. He was the Michigan State coach, and this is before they had their new fancy gym. This is kind of just at the era. The Hawkeyes had already transitioned to Carver Hawkeye Arena, 
but they only had recently left the University of Iowa Fieldhouse. Michigan State in the 80s was still playing at like one of these old classic big field houses where they had bleachers and you could smell the popcorn and the sweat and the basketball. It's kind of like Hoosiers on steroids. They, none of the, they were just starting to get some of these newer arenas. And Bobby Knight was really at the center of this. And so even then, people always really ask the following question in relation to Bob Knight. I think it's kind of a good question because I think it's important for any leadership organization, any military organization, as a teacher. The question with Bob Knight always was, is does the method justify the results? Well, what was the Bob Knight method? And I'll try to answer the question. I don't know how well I'll do. Maybe it's going to be more in the form of for you to answer the question based upon your own experience. But I'm going to try to actually answer this rather than lose another question. Unlike Jesus, I'm, I'm actually going to try to answer some questions here for you. See if you disagree with this. But his method clearly was mastery of detail in the game of basketball. Um, he was one of these guys that I think was was early coaching experience was at West Point. And at that time, too, basketball was all about fundamentals and discipline. He really was raised in the era of Hoosiers, right? You've seen that movie Hoosiers and the Gene Hackman coach. That was very classic where you would have games where teams would win like 58 to 52. And they were these close and defense was really emphasized. And there was a guy that coached at Princeton that, that, that wrote like you, where you pass the ball like 20 times. And he wasn't that strict, but he was very much of a disciplinarian, really focused on man-to-man -man defense, fundamentals, getting high percentage shots. And it was also, they, they did have the three-point, the three-point arc had been added, I want to say sometime in the early to mid-80s. So 1987, they have the three-point shot it had recently been added. Steve Alford, of course, was the master of the three-point shot, and, and they and they adapted to that well. But it still hadn't fundamentally changed the game because it's kind of in the pre-analytic era. We didn't really realize how valuable the three-point shot was. So There's still a lot of – you had these huge centers like Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon. It was still kind of the age of the big guy center. Although Knight I, – I think he had Kent Benson in the late 70s. It didn't seem to be as much of a point of evidence, but it was motion and movement and beauty and high percentage shots and discipline. But the reason why it was controversial wasn't only because he used a lot of discipline. I think most of you wouldn't disagree with discipline. The issue with Knight was is he was kind of an asshole to the point where I think there was one point where he may have choked a player, like where he grabbed him by a neck. And another case, like obviously during a game, he got so mad, he threw a, a chair out on the floor. He was clearly one of these men that just would lose his shit and either couldn't help himself or felt that it was absolutely necessary to do um, what he needed to get done. So the question is, was that really necessary to be so fucking mean and nasty? and humiliating to his players. And I, I would really say the answer to that question would be a one giant motherfucking no. Um, I think he succeeded in spite of that. 
And had he not been such an asshole, I think he probably would have won even more games. And I just offer, I I, I don't think, and I, I think that when coaches act like that, I think that they feel like if you really need to instill that kind of fear in players where they can't naturally express themselves, I think you get kind of a mechanical. I remember my high school basketball coach kind of, kind of what he wasn't really a night protege. He wasn't really as big an asshole, but basically he kind of liked robot basketball and, you know, for, for players not to flow naturally within their natural skill sets. And of course you can't just play pickup, right? I mean, I think everyone agrees with that, but really it, his method of basketball, eventually what it really did was it really started to affect the recruiting because there's a lot of players that were like, why the hell would I go play for Coach Knight when I can go to another play, another place, learn just as much, have just as much fun, have just as much success, maybe even more, and not have to put up with the bullshit? And there are other places where the coaches don't act like that. You know, I think of a coach like I'll give an example of two examples. So I'll try to demonstrate and prove my point. Um, look at, for example, Phil Jackson a pro coach who basically, I mean, Bill, now I'm not saying be a pushy pussy and be like, Oh, you know, I'm just, not, I'm just going to be a wet fish and totally lose control. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that you can exert control through authority and respect and quiet assertive dignity where the players respect you without you having to enforce your will on them. And I'll use, an example of Phil Jackson. If you've read any of his books, he was all about letting people be people and letting them play, but then he he would persuade them and inspire them to play within the system, to kind of incorporate this Buddhist Zen philosophy, to take these super powerful egos and mold them and get them harmoniously while letting them be themselves. And I can think of no better example than that than how Phil Jackson handled Bobby, um, Dennis Rodman. So at the time, you know, Dennis Rodman, the early part of his career was really talented. In the mid-90s, when he got to the Bulls, he really started feeling himself. He started dyeing his hair, putting nose rings in. And Dennis Rodman was a central cog to some of those Bull teams. And Dennis, like I think it was like during the playoff, he's like, Coach, I need to take some time in Vegas. And Phil let him do it. Now, I don't think Phil would have let every single player do it, but he knew that whatever was driving Dennis, he needed to get that out of his system. And he created a kind of reciprocity and sense of gratitude on the part of Dennis that Dennis is like, hey, if you're going to let me be me in exchange, I feel bound to you. You know, there's a book on persuasion that I read by... Um, I think it's Robert Cialdini, and it basically talks about reciprocity, unconditional gifts. You know, like in the 60s and 70s, like there's a lot of Harry Krishna dudes that would like hang out in airports. I don't think they let, I don't, I haven't seen a Harry Krishna in forever, but like in the 60s, it was kind of a big deal. And they would hand these little flowers as a condition prior to sharing their message. Well, why did they do that? Because if you then accepted the flower, you're kind of like, well, I suppose I better sit around and listen to your pitch. You know, it's kind of like those people that fall for the free trip to Hawaii. Well, there they kind of make you listen to the timeshare thing. But um, 
you know, people, you know, but even if they did, people are like, well, I guess if you paid for my trip to Hawaii, then I better listen to this timeshare, but never do timeshares. And juxtapose that and think about um, Bobby Knight, what he he never would have tolerated that by Dennis Rodman to leave and spend a couple nights in Vegas during the playoffs. He would have said, oh, that's total bullshit. Totally disagree with that. I'm not, and I'm certainly not going to let you color your hair, wear your nose rings and all that stuff because it's not going to be good for the team. Well, you're not going to get the Picassos. You're not going to get the the artists. You're not going to get, the, and Michael Jordan would never have put up with that. Now, you're going to say, well, yeah, but Michael Jordan was on the 1984 basketball team and he did put up with Knight. Well, Jordan was a grown-ass man by the time he became the, when he landed the pros. Never would have put up with that. Scottie Pippen never would have put up with that. So Knight, this leadership style never would have worked in the pros. And it really stopped working even in the college game where at, at some point players were like, yeah, I'll let you coach me. I'll let you even yell at me. But you got to treat me with basic respect. And so I don't know that that would necessarily work um, in today's game. Another example that I would use was, I think, a greater, more winning coach was John Wooden. John Wooden was this quiet presence, very much of a, of a UCLA basketball coach, who I think won like 11 national titles. Very quiet authority, did have plenty of discipline, but just didn't coach that way. Didn't coach to humiliate, didn't coach to yell. He maintained his self-control. And how it's kind of like an alcoholic telling his kid not to drink. If your whole part of your game is discipline and self-control yet you yourself can't keep your shit together and lose self-control all the time at some point the players just totally lose respect for you an example of uh, a recent coach who was fired from the um or the las vegas Ra raiders is josh mcdaniels i get the sense that he was just a fucking asshole and the players didn't like him and they, they have no respect for you. So yeah, you can rule by fear, but it's kind of a weak type of power. I'd give you examples and you could say, well, that won't work, but what about the military where you need to have severe discipline? I'll, I'll win that argument. U.S. Grant and Zachary Taylor. Zachary, U.S. Grant modeled his leadership style on old rough and ready Zachary Taylor of the Mexican-American War. Both had very similar styles, leadership styles. Quiet, they did not yell a lot. They gave few orders. And the orders that they did give, they demanded respect. And they were very clear about the central point of the order was to be followed. But they left to the individual soldier the flexibility to be able to implement that central order that was given. So, for example, U.S. Grant would say, your task is to follow General Robert A. Lee, or Robert E. Lee. And wherever he shall go, you shall go also. So that was the task. Now, how you got that, how that happened, he would give flexibility to the players. And that's to a large degree what Phil Jackson did as a basketball coach. He would say, here's my system. There are central things that you must follow. We are running the triangle system. He was able to get michael jordan into the flow of a team concept but he did it not by coercing michael but by talking to michael persuading to michael 
listening to what made Michael tick, getting to know Michael. So Michael willingly surrendered to the authority of the coach because he believed in what he had to say. That was not night style. Night style was, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to force you to play my way or no way. And that, and that's just, there's a certain amount. I mean, you know, you can't say it was a total failure. He did win three national titles. But the question is, did he have to be that kind of nasty personality in order to get that done? And of course, it didn't really hurt him in the latter part of his career. He um, was fired from the University of Indiana. I think the other interesting thing is, is he did have a pretty successful stay at Texas Tech um, in Lubbock. I believe they had a couple basketball teams that were um he had a couple basketball teams that were pretty darn good i think he made it maybe a few sweet 16s but it's just too hard to be a national power at texas tech in basketball there just aren't enough basketball players out there so as a leadership style the answer to that question i think is a giant no and I would just offer again, so in summary on that point, the following leaders, Ulysses Grant did not act that way. Phil Jackson did not act that way. The, the great basketball coach of the Lakers and Chicago Bills, Zachary Taylor, did not act that way. To a large degree, um, Ike Eisenhower did not act that way. And again, these guys were tough. They would issue orders, but they had the kind of people skills to kind of lubricate the situation. Ronald Reagan, you know, you think of United States presidents. How many United States presidents have these really toxic, nasty personalities? A lot of them have a certain type of charisma um, that allows them to lead without being so freaking toxic. I think of, you know, Jimmy Carter wasn't a great president, but he got elected president because of his likability. So I just don't think if you're trying to teach leadership skills that you identify that character trait and say, yeah, that's something you should emulate. I think a lot of these unsuccessful Patriot football coaches that have tried to Im implement kind of a, the asshole style of Bill Belichick really have not done very well because players just and won't put up with it. And even then, I don't think players really, I, I just don't think it's an effective leadership style. But let me also share, I think, a, a positive, and maybe you can sort of go through your own Rolodex, of a lesson that I think I did take away from that, and I do quote it quite frequently, is... Bob, you know, of course, would get he got criticism throughout his career um, about his method. And there was one interview that I saw with him, and he he answered that because he wasn't very thoughtful, well-read people, read person. He loved history. He read the you know histories of George S. Patton, the great military leaders. So he he was a he could have be a very charming and decent person. And he said, you know, I don't I don't. I'm demanding, it was based on what his take was. I'm demanding. And in order to be demanding, you need to be able to seek the best out of your players. And then he asked people to think about the best teachers that they had. Think about the most demanding teacher, number one, and think about the best teachers that they have. Well, usually the most demanding teacher that you have is also the best teacher that you may have. The ones that expect the best out of you and that no, you can do it. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think, for example, like my teacher, Mr. Gesme, my English teacher from seventh grade through eighth grade, was a fantastic English teacher. And he did expect, you know, the people could do their best work. 
I think of my choir teacher at college, Weston Noble, who I've done several podcasts on. He was also very demanding. But here the difference, you know, again, I think of these, they were demanding. They didn't expect that excellence. But they just didn't have that kind, and they did have discipline, so that they would be able to assert their authority. So I'm not. This is not a clarion call to being a pushover or a weak need, you know, leader. People do crave strong leadership, but I think quiet, assertive authority, as opposed to the yelling amount. I mean, I, I just think that the toxicity created with the yelling far outweighs whatever you're trying to achieve with that fear. And I think you need to surround yourself with people that don't need that, that are internally self-motivated and they persuade them to get in alignment with wanting what you want. And so I think that's kind of the key is, and, and at that time too, the NCAA rules were a lot more limited in terms of transfer. And so once you actually signed up, you were kind of like an indentured servant. You couldn't make any money. You could transfer, but you had to wait a year. So it was extremely rare that people's transferred. And in terms of playing professionally, I think at the time, I'm not sure, I think the NBA, whether it was pattern or whether they had a labor agreement, but I think you could only go out your junior year at the time. I, there was certainly very rare that people went out after their sophomore year and even more rare after the freshman year. So almost all these guys had three to four year experience. So once you signed up for his program, you were kind of stuck. So yeah, I think that is accurate. And I'd agree with Bob on that, that... Um, that the most demanding teachers are often the the best teachers. I think that's absolutely true. But I think the way in which he went about his coaching style, I do not think the ends justified the means. And I think had he been able to maintain his own self-control, I think he would have even had a greater amount of uh, success than he, than he even did. I think he would have even gotten greater players. He certainly would have put his hands on that young kid in the early 90s that led to him being terminated. Um, and I think it really prevented him ability to, to recruit the type of player that he wanted to recruit. You know, I even think of like our coach, Kirk Ferentz. I get the sense that Kirk certainly runs a very tight ship, very tight program, but doesn't and yells and gets the best out of players, but not, not the toxicity. He's very protective of those players. So I think there are ways that you can go about doing that. I think at some point I'll probably do a, um, a kind of more on just different types of leadership styles, what works, what doesn't. So I don't think anyone would say that constant yelling and berating is an effective method. I think you can achieve the exact same things. Um, attention to detail, discipline, inspiring leadership to get people to willingly surrender to your method of style. And I think here's the other key, I think, for coaches is to find out what each player does well and tailor your system to the player to allow them to kind of, um, you know, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a jazz symphony where there's order, there's structure, but you are allowing some, some flexibility in terms of how that works so that they can take the system and move forward with it. Now, you know, that makes me think of, I was recently in Tulsa and I thought of the one, um, Pulse, a football player that I knew was a guy named TJ Rubley, who was famously cut after Mike Holmgren told him to sit on the ball and to basically take a knee. And TJ Rubley audibled and threw an interception and basically um, 
the coach cut him on the spot. So I think the issue is, is that you have to be able to, you know, and your team has to know what are the orders that are red line orders and what are the ones that are implementing the system then to allow you then to implement the vision so that you see the game in the same way that the coach does. And that gets just down into the teaching. Do you learn a lot when you're in states of emotional agitation and stress? Is that an effective learning technique? Or do you learn the best when you're in a state of relaxation, like hopefully you are now, to be able to absorb what the speaker's trying to say? And I just think that I would say a giant no. Uh, no one would identify those leadership skills. Certainly you want to have the knowledge, the attention to detail, the discipline, all of those things are very good things. But I think there's examples of people who did it far better without all the bullshit. Um, you know, like again, John Wooden, Mike Krzyzewski, of course, lies, um, was a very intense personality too. No doubt would yell a lot of his players, but I just don't get the sense that he had that type of lead. And I think interestingly enough, I think Krzyzewski actually coached with Bob Knight um, at West Point and probably was berated a lot by um, Bob Knight. Um, but to a certain degree, wasn't, and it was just as successful, if not more. And I think the reason why I know he wasn't a total asshole like Bob Knight is he was always able to recruit these superstar players, even, well, basically up until his retirement, which me, which me suggests that he was the type of player, a coach that the players respected and would learn and take coaching from, but that was not this kind of toxic asshole. But I'm in no means saying that all, I'm not saying like a player's coach, you know, I think most players coaches, ones that are really kind of like, oh, friends to the players, you still have to have authority. But I think there's ways, that, I mean, look at, look at Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy won a Super Bowl. Tony Dungy was a championship coach. Kind, quiet, gentle, firm, disciplined leadership. Another coach that pops in my mind in terms of, you know, he's talked about focus on what matters and then allow them the flexibility to kind of be themselves. John Madden, the early 70s. He was also the coach that had, he cared about the details that mattered and then kind of let the players be the players and, and allowed them to use their best talents. The players loved them for it and they won. So I think, I think Madden at least won one uh, Super Bowl and shortly though after his successor, Tom Flores won another one for him. I think Flores may have won two. So, and that's by allowing people to be people. So let people be people, allow them to get, allow them to do their best work by being themselves and to tap it into the hidden talents that they don't even know they have. Now that's going to take hard work. It's going to take discipline. Um, but I think rarely does that come out of people by constantly yelling at them. I just don't think that's effective leadership style. So the book recommendation would be Season on the Brink um, by John Feinstein. And for me, it's like, it's not exactly Hoosiers because it's, um, you know, it's obviously college basketball, but it does remind me like at my junior high in Decora, there is like a Hoosier style basketball gym with like the, the bleachers, the wooden bleachers up above the floor. And the floor is like kind of like, it's not really a pit, but it's down below these wooden seats. And they have these little triangular dividers between the two of them. That's how they used to build the gymnasium with these huge windows. Of course, in the 50s, they were really drafty. So they would overheat it and these gyms would be super hot. So it's not quite that because he's not obviously talking about a high school experience, but he is talking about 
the college level field houses, right? Like at Michigan State and, some of these, and Assembly Hall, I think in Indiana, which kind of are these old classic college gymnasiums, which you basically see from the 20s, like, you know, really until about the 80s was the era of these old field houses. You can practically hear the the, the crowd, the, you can hear the stamping of the of the of the bleachers. You can see the molding of this team, the uncertainty, the stress, the moments with with night. It was a fan, and of course, these journalists are such good writers. And it takes you there, like you're really there. It's like you have a bird's eye view of what it's like to be Bob Knight and to coach a Division One program. So there was that movie in the early '90s about football called The Program. Well, this gave you a glimpse of what it was like to be in one of the top basketball programs in the United States to look at his methods, how he did it. It was a glimpse into Steve Alford, all of those things. And it was it's just a really good book. So if you really want to get a taste of, of Night, Season on the Brink, John Feinstein, I think it was his first big book. He's since, since written other books. Um, but, it, but it's just a really good book. So if you want to kind of get that, and the, the players that I remember from the book and from that championship season, which is the season after Keith Smart, Steve Alford, Dan Dakich, there were other guys in the early 80s, like Isaiah Thomas, Ken Benson, I think, in the late 70s. So I hope you found this particular episode um, helpful. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope I hope this brings back memories for you of the 80s. You know, like in the 80s, like at my family home, we had this like old stove that we would get and we, and, and you could only get like Hawkeye basketball games and like Channel 2. And we'd, it would be like 25 below out and we'd get this wood stove going and just get it piping hot. So the rest of the house would be like 70 and down there would be like co- cozy 80. It's not like we were sweating. But then you'd sit and watch Hawkeye basketball game, and, and they were really good games. And this is the era that Bob Knight was coaching on. So it was kind of also a trip down memory lane. And even his last stage at Lubbock, you know, I think of like Route 66 and traveling through the Southwest Texas. And I know Oklahoma had some great basketball coaches earlier than Knight, coaches like Mo Iba. And Kentucky had a coach called Adolph Rupp. Obviously, he was before, born before the other Adolph. You don't hear too many Adolphs anymore. But it was really a trip down memory lane. And, you know, I've, I've been beaten up on Bob. I, I do respect the, the legacy that he left. Um, certainly, three national titles. You cannot question the results. I think he probably was a good, decent man. He felt he was just, I think he obviously felt this was necessary to do, like his coaching style was necessary to do, um, you know, to, to be the coach that he was. But I, I I just, I just push back on that. So he did leave a great legacy. Um, I do think he was, um, you know, he did leave a great legacy for his players. A lot of people have spoken very fondly to him. They referred to him as a father figure. Um, and, you know, but, it, but it's a mixed bag. And I think that's part of anyone's legacy. Like what, what did we do well on earth? And what were things that maybe we're not so proud of? We didn't do well. So I think that's kind of the, the, the self-examination that I think maybe we should all do. So, I hope you felt this particular episode um, informative. I hope you hope it kind of jogged your memory bank as to, you know, whether you liked Bob Knight as much as I did, but he certainly was a great coach. 
And it did bring me back to that era of 1980s basketball, which is really, it was really probably the pinnacle. It, it started declining. I think Christian Leitner, early 90s Duke, there were still a couple of these great teams, but really once he hit the mid 90s, college basketball just was not the level that it was in the 80s. And certainly in terms of how big it was nationally, it's really become more of a regional sport now. And it's just it just doesn't have the the the, the, the energy that it had when Bob Knight was kicking ass and taking names. So I hope you found this particular episode of the Rockney Cast informative. Um, please give me positive reviews on Apple, Spotify, and all places which where podcasts are heard. Um, I'm reading a really good book called Hugh 1968 by Mark Bowden. This badass book about the Vietnam War. So once I'm done with that, I probably will share it with you. I'm also going to probably do a book review of Stephen Ambrose's book, Steve Citizen Soldiers. Oh my God, it's really good. So we're going to continue to do some um, book recommendations. I'm going to be bashing some Republicans uh, because I think that uh, I, I am Republican, I'm firmly Republican though. I'm not reevaluating, but I'm just like, I think there's some easy issues that they're missing, especially nationally. I kind of like where our state Republican party is right now. Um, there are a couple of things that I still don't like about the Republican Party in terms of their platform. So we'll cover a little bit of that, too. So, um, you know, as always, it just really occurred to me that, um, you know, the 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 analytics people tell me I need to have a theme, but I'm just I'm resistant. But the theme is me and I'm going to continue to do whatever the hell I want, whatever I want to talk about. And if you want to tune in. Great. If not, well, you know, you know where you can go. You can go fly a kite if you don't want to tune in. So. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to do this because I, I just need to share what I'm, what I'm doing and we're going to do books, politics, my fitness stuff. I'm, I'm, I guess my model is maybe Clay Travis. Maybe I want to be the next Clay Travis, although my audience is much, much smaller. So that's it. This episode for the Rockney cast tune in. I hope you all have a wonderful, fabulous weekend until next time you and I see each other on the Rockney cast.